All right. Thank you. So turn in Micah. Micah. I always worry, by the way, when Pat hits me up really quick at the end, like the previous Sunday, and he says, I want you to do Micah, and then I show up here, and I'm actually doing Malachi. (laughs) I I always worry about that. I ask him several times to make certain. Micah. Let's read verses 1 through 6. Actually, 1 through 5. <clears throat> the book of Micah. You pushed that, right, Pat? I did. Okay. The word of the Lord which came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. <clears throat> Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all it contains. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming uh, forth from his place. He will come down and tread on high the places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him. The valleys will be split like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. All this is for the rebellion of Jacob, which, by the way, in the book of Micah means Israel. All this is for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Many times you have a prophet, uh, and there are more prophets for Judah than there are actually for Israel. You have a prophet that speaks uh, on behalf, against and for God, against the nation for God on his behalf. And they will speak to either the uh, northern kingdom or the southern kingdom, which includes Judah. Uh, But rarely uh, do you see it where they're speaking in their own words against both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And that's what we see actually in verse 5. Micah's ministry begins almost 40 years before the fall of the 10 northern tribes, so that puts us around 722. Um, Actually, before that, about 35 years, and he has a ministry just after that for another 10 to 15 years. Then you have um, his ministry has profound impact, so also about um, the... um, uh, captivity of Jerusalem and uh, uh, dispersion of the Jews from that perspective, the destruction of the temple. And with that, you have, uh, you could say, his ministry affecting both key periods of captivity for all of the kingdom of Israel, both north and south. When you read in Second Kings, um, during the time of Hosea, who was the king during the time of Micah, uh, you read this. It says that the time when God tore Israel from the house of David. So that's the timing of his ministry. It, we should not uh, miss out. It's always good to follow back. It's kind of like uh, reading a New Testament book and then you look back to the book of Acts to trace it, right? There are much information that helps us there. When we look back from uh, Micah, you go back to Second Kings, say, or you go into Chronicles, and you find other information that gives you the background. Certainly here we learn during the cultural uh, morass 
this spiritual malaise and evil that uh, is um, part of the idolatry of the age. But it's interesting that when we look at those three kings that are listed there in verse 1, Jotham is a king who, by the way, the superscription is at the very beginning uh, of Second Kings, you read that he is actually a king who does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. But, and what is the but there? That is but, but they did not remove the high places. They did not take away their idols. Kind of like David's house, right? They, even David's house, when he was fleeing, uh, when he was um, moving, I can't remember the specific circumstance, but his wife took the idols with her. We see that all the time. You just can't separate themselves from the world. But Ahaz, of course, is the king that is, you could say, the archetype of evil in person. And this really explains the culture that I'm about to describe to you. And yet Hezekiah becomes the king still in the in the day and age of... of um, uh, Micah's ministry, where there's a, a short period of time of reform. But at the end of the day, it's a downward slide because of idolatry. So he's a prophet of Judah, uh, born in the area southwest of Jerusalem. His days covered those reigns of Jotham and Ahaz and, Hezek- and Hezekiah, also Hosha in the northern kingdom. Micah spoke in a time of idolatry and oppression by its own leaders. My people have arisen as an enemy. My people, not the foreign nations of Assyria, of Egypt, or any other nation, but my people have become their own enemies. The taking of one another's property, neighbors being evicted, a place of no rest, threats outside, and also violence inside just as the church is experiencing today and each year it seems to be even to a greater degree. Well, where does a church or a nation, a at that time a theocratic nation, uh, Judah and Samaria still theocratic in nature, even though the kings in the northern kingdom are pretty much vassals by the very end of the, uh, the time of um, the Assyrian captivity. Go to chapter 2, verse 11. So where do we go, right? Where, where, where are the people should go? A religious theocratic nation or a nation that has, say, foundations like America. And by the way, we're not going there. We haven't gone there in quite a while. We're not part of the conversation. We're not part of the dialogue anymore. But if you want to know about the spiritual uh, weakness of a nation, you usually go to the theologians and the pastors of you know, the period of time that you're looking, right? You go to the leaders and the priests and the scribes during the time of Israel's troubles, right? But look what verse 11 says in chapter 2. If a man walking after the wind and falsehood had told lies and said, I will speak out to you concerning wine and liquor, he would be a spokesman to this people. Literally, I'm going to read the study note because it's better than I can word it. The people preferred to listen to false prophets under the influence of alcohol rather than Micah himself. Rather than Micah. Drunken false prophets were, their ears were uh, tuned to them more than a prophet of righteousness. You know, Paul said to Timothy, he says, for a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. That's the day and age 
that we live in. So drunken false prophets, give them no relief. With impunity, the leaders, and not, Michael words it this way, this is, this is right, this is kind of like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre description by Micah, right? They, the people, the people chopped them up as a pot. You know, you're making beet stew with the other people, the people who aren't the leaders, who aren't, who aren't the priests, the people in power, right? And this is Israel herself, Judah herself, right? And they're chopping the people up like meat for a beef stew. That's my addition to what actually Micah is saying. The words of Micah are prefaced with the word, hear, O prophets. Every prophet has a style to their preaching. Even today, we are individuals and personalities and we have our education, uh, whether college or whatever, how much we've read the Bible and you know, those who are gifted, uh, they speak in certain ways. I still remember Ravi Zacharias used to always, in his words, when he especially emphasized something, he'd have an S that I'll always go, yeah, yeah, that's right? right, that's right. Well, Jesus said, he who has as ears to hear, let him hear. He also said, I have something to say to you. Gary uses it. He's plagiarizing Jesus, of course. <laughs> and Jesus, Jesus, Jesus also says, truly, truly, I say to you. But here, Micah the prophet says, hear, O people. And actually, that probably he's saying that beyond the borders of Judah, because he's a prophet for Judah, but again, he speaks to those in the northern kingdom as well. Micah's message of destruction is spoken to Israel and Judah. The ten tribes of Israel are in rebellion, and Jerusalem is considered a place, quote-unquote, of idolatry. Literally, Micah says this, Jerusalem, you're a high place. And he's not using that as a geographical description that would be accurate as Jerusalem sitting on a hill. He's saying, you are the place of the idols and of your worship. No prophet. Actually, Micah says, because of this, I must lament and wail. So this is bringing tears to him, like all the prophets we hear. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised we have the Book of Lamentations by Jeremiah, right? We, we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't. Uh, we see Solomon. He writes the Book of Solomon, Song of Solomon's, right? And and in this, you see hearts pouring out of those who are prophetic in nature or prophets themselves specifically. No prophet is qualified, no pastor is qualified if he does not weep over his own sins and the sins of the people that he ministers to. Not worth their weight in salt. Israel's wound, Michael says, Micah says, is incurable. It's a fatal disease of sin and idolatry. In verses 10 through 16 of chapter 1, God traces the root of the Assyrians just as God traces the sin of the people. There's an origin to where you and I are at today. This did not show up in happenstance. I remember saying, I remember I was in the office, um, this is probably 20 years ago. My liberal friend from Worcester said to me, um, he says, why do you always pick on the gay people? And I says, this the transcendent moment within our history. And it's changing everything, and it will continue to do so. And I said that to him 20 years ago. 
and that has only come true. And of course, that wasn't not my own opinion only, but it's the opinion of many historians and theologians and like. Look what this says. This is how basically Micah describes how God views the sin and how he traces it. He says, oh, inhabitant of Lactish, she was beginning or the beginning of the sin or of sin. We see that in verse 13 of chapter 1. Think of it. A book was written by um, a neuropsychologist, uh, Marshall Kirk, and also by also another gay uh, public relations expert. I believe he was gay. If not, forgive me. Hunter Madsen. They wrote a book called How America Will Conquer Its Fears and Hatred of Gays in the 1990s. Now, they also wrote six bullet points in 1987 that began in earnest the political uh, movement of the, of the gay and transgender movement politically to literally change the whole nation. Then they write this book in the 1990s. Look what Micah says. And I'll go back to what I just said. Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work evil on their beds. He knows when sin begins who it begins with, the time it begins. And also he knows the scheming even when they're lying in their bed, whether it's the two men that I just mentioned in the whole gay and transgender movement that literally has forced Christians to lose their jobs, right? And we say, oh, how did we get here? And we do that casually, don't we? I've said it, casually. But God never says that. He never says that. He knew that the gender movement would start, you know, and we even, in fact, uh, uh, Carl Trudeau would say, probably it even when he wrote his book on the um, um, the rise and the triumph of the modern self, he even said, he says, I probably could go back farther to trace the gender movement, as God traces, by the way, sin. He was doing what God does already, infinitely, omnisciently, perfectly. A guy like Carl Trudeau has to work really hard, but God knows what's even being planned in the beds of the wicked. And so he knew, Carl Trudeau said, in the Enlightenment, and then Freud had a play within it, and the Surrealists of the 20th century, then Marcuse and the Frankfurt School out of Germany, and all, we read things, we take our time to read history books, and yet it's God who sees them planning it in their beds. They know the end the That's right. He knows the mind of man. Jesus, uh, one of his disciples said, he knows what is in man. This kind of unstoppable evil signals the downfall of a once great nation under God. And I put that on purpose. Amen. Right? The average empire lasts, I think I've said this before, 250 to 450 years. Israel has falling into syncretism. And even though he is a prophet uh, for Judah, he also speaks concerning, and as I said before, Israel. The word Jacob is used here for the ten northern tribes, while the high place is Jerusalem, as I said before. Mike, Micah speaks of the coming judgment of them in terms of those two uh, distinct 
national elements of which was once the 12 tribes of Israel before it is split by Jeroboam and Rehoboam, right? Micah offers an olive branch, though, after condemning them. It, is it being said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Of course, it's rhetorical. Of course not. Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to the one walking uprightly? You know, God always, 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 I don't believe there's ever been a culture that has existed where God hasn't placed a righteous man and a righteous woman. Maybe it's only a few where that is the contrast and the distinctive nature of what God expects of man compared to the rest of the evil within the, in the world that regards to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Yeah, that's a good reminder when it comes to numbers, because when you think about the tyranny of the minority in this country right now, right. it's such a small, yeah. minuscule percentage it of is. people are actually, uh, you know, gender dys- dysphoric. Right. And you think of the amazing successes that they've made politically. Now, yeah. of course, you have to have alliances yeah. with other evil factions within the culture, right? The media, by and large, is yeah. profoundly evil. Right. This administration is profoundly evil. So I guess it doesn't take, you know, it certainly is in the kind of field where there's a lot of dumb. It's been fertilized by all the other things that are going on. And I think that's where the beauty of um, Doctrines of Grace churches like ours is that we understand God's sovereignty and we relish. I was actually just explaining uh, our church a little bit more to Nate Oliver down at the Federated Church. And I said, you know, I said, one thing our church has that is not with your average church, even if they call themselves reformed, especially independents, is that we relish, our congregation relishes in fact. You mentioned the sovereignty of God. Everybody gets straightened up a little bit and says, oh, yeah, right? We're ready for bear. We love the sovereignty of God. We love to know that God sees the schemes when they are even in their beds. We love that because it causes the peace that surpasses all understanding in a world that is just inflated in their ego and the destruction of what God at once called good because he created everything. This is the choice of every tribe, tongue, and nation to live uprightly, right? That's the choice. Live uprightly or not. Choose good or evil. And if judgment falls upon you, don't blame God. At the end of the day, every culture faces that. His spirit, God's spirit, is not impatient. He is not impatient. You know, Paul says that Romans, he says, having passed over the sins previously committed, he has become both just and justifier. He could have judged us before the day of our conversion. Of course, that's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it, the way to state it? But at the end of the day, he did not have to pass over our sin. I I could have come right out of my mother's room and he could have gone, you're done. But he didn't. His spirit is not impatient. So why is God so easy to blame? Tell me that. Why? Why is God so easy to blame? In a couple sentences for each. Yeah. Well, I think... People blame God because they understand he has the power to make it not happen the way it happens. Or, you know, mm-hmm. if something terrible has happened, they say, well, why did God let that happen? Mm-hmm. They know he could stop it. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
that is a very common probably for every generation that has existed. And, yeah. He's patient and um, they don't get the judgment they deserve right away. So they figured he just off up there somewhere. Mr. George, you got a verse to companion that, right? Yeah. How about the Lord have made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil? Okay. Uh, I'm sticking about the other one, and I used to be a memory verse of mine about um, they do more evil because God is patient. Which well, Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men are fully set in them to do evil. There you go. That's the one. There you go. There you go. You notice I emphasize used to be a memory verse. That's why Gary George and I uh, work so well together. Uh, I ask the question, he answers it. Here's a couple thoughts from my own head. We love victimhood. It allows us to excuse away sin. We also love sin. And we don't want God to tell us it's wrong. We also love ourselves. And we become the tower of our own idol. When Jesus said in John fifteen twenty two, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. By the way, in righteousness, Christ righteousness, you stand as an opposition to those who love evil, want to walk in it, and you intimidate them. Just, yeah, just by being, you know, by being acting uh, uprightly, it's an accusation. Well, you give them no more excuse for sin. Now, you may lose your head because of it, but at the end of the day... Because you stand in righteousness and declare the gospel, you are intimidating to those who want to go and live in the luxury of their sin. So who is best fitted in our culture to tell us what we want to hear? Who's best fitted to do that? Let me read that. I see Mr. George straining. I read that kind of fast. Who is best fitted in our culture to tell us what we want to hear? <laughs> well, by the way, actually, th- that is true. Actually, it's become TNN. Okay. Yeah, does that matter? Any news outlet? I yeah. Mean, well, news outlets, but let's put it this way. I just want to put it in a larger context, yeah. but mean the same thing. Leaders. Okay. Leaders within the religious community that was apostatized. Leaders in the communication industry. Leaders in the education industry. Leaders. And this is the day and age of Micah. The leaders are literally taking paupers' homes from them. So therefore, the evil is exasperated upon evil because of the lack of pity, the lack of sorrow. Micah shares it. He's intimidating to them. Go ahead. I was going to just say, Billy Graham 20 years ago or so, authority was welcomed within the political community. But his son Franklin, who in some ways is more faithful than his father was, Is like an outcast. Yep. He's a he's a black sheep to them. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that was a special day and age where you know we had this culture that was more on the agreement side of a Christian worldview, and now we've far surpassed that. I should so or or yeah, I guess we're. I don't want to say far surpassed in relationship to that we're better. We're actually lesser. 
On the other hand, by the way, Micah says this, I am filled with power, the spirit with the spirit of the Lord in a degrading, decaying culture. You have the spirit of God. If anyone does not have the spirit of God, it does not belong to him. Every single person I know here personally has a testimony and witness and, and, and a, um, an endurance within the faith that I can say the spirit of God abides within you. And therefore, you are that light in a darkened world. And I will declare judgment upon all the leaders. This is what Micah says. The prophets, the seers, the priests, and the diviners. He's singling out all of those in power in Judah. Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. Chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, uh, this chapter 3, verse 12. Yeah, the, the one just before. I didn't write that one down. That's usually the case. But yes, that is a quote. I will declare the judgment upon all the leaders, the prophets. I might, I might have paraphrased what's being said in Micah in writing that. But Micah picks on the leaders as the responsible ones. Therefore, in chapter 4, verses 9 through 13, Micah says this, Like a woman in childbirth, go to Babylon. Now remember, when he's saying this, he's speaking in advance. His ministry is about 35 years before the fall of the uh, ten northern tribes. He's speaking beyond now that when he says this. He's speaking to Judah you're as sinful as them. A little bit more time. I'm saying 130 years approximation. And this is what's going to happen to you. Like a childbirth. Let her be polluted. Pollu- by the way, polluted by what? Idols. Idolatry. You know, God created Israel to be isolated. And to a certain extent. I mean, there was no such mindset when Israel existed uh, before the the split of the kingdom to be this nation that was inclusive. It was not a nation to be a um, multicultural, pluralistic. Didn't exist in Israel. Socially, culturally, legally, spiritually isolated because they were a distinct nation God chose. The hopelessness of the situation is improved by God's grace to Micah and to Jerusalem. He says, when all nations will come to her and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord that he may teach us about his ways. Oh, teaching is always the beginning of revival. Hearing the word and acting upon it. The moving of the Spirit of God in the heart of a man and a woman and a nation is changed. All this will happen on the day of the Lord. Of course, like so many, if not all the prophets in the Old Testament, every single one of them speaks about the day of the Lord. The words used in chapters 4, verses 1 through 8, are future. It is a scene of world peace and of unity. They will hammer their swords into plowshares, Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Each of them will sit under his vine. We know this has 
has and never will happen as long as man's nature remains sinful. Some say there is a thousand-year reign. Again, I start repeating myself. I just did Obadiah a couple weeks ago. Uh, and uh, at the end of the day, he talks about the day of the Lord. We have to, you know, there is the reassuring or regathering back into some parts of the land that are listed, listed there in Obadiah. And um, we have to ask the question of when will this happen? It's not like actually we've already seen, we, we've seen history past already. We've seen where Israel has ended up. And we see the only hope, Romans chapter 11, is a spiritual revival that God deals with them in the end. But that's a bigger subject beyond our borders. But you have to talk about it because the prophets talk about it so much. Will this be um, a regathering and peaceful moment for Israel in time and space while they exist upon this earth, a thousand-year reign? Jesus said, in the world you have tribulation, but behold, I've overcome the world. This overcoming of the world is not because the world has ceased from serving idols. The overcoming of the world is for being regenerated by the Spirit of God and living in the midst of a pagan world and transcending it through the the hopes and the promises of God and living them out. The picture of world peace is found in two places, my opinion here. In the human heart where God has redeemed him, where God's spirit dwells. Secondly, on the new heaven and a new earth that is promised where righteousness dwells and no sin will enter the new Jerusalem. As long as man breathes from his old corrupt body, nations will destroy other nations. Just will happen. Even Jesus said that in Matthew 24, right? Yeah. He said, nation will rise against nation. But Micah gives the Jew an indication of Israel's only hope, and that's Messiah. Let's go to uh, chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. Actually, I'll read verse 1 too. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite uh, the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem, Bethlehem, Epathrath, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time. When she who is in labor has born a child, then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. Actually, verse 4, And he will arise and the shepherd and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and will remain, because at the time he will be great to the ends of the earth, and this one will be our peace. This one will be our peace. Singular. Now this is, of course, speaking of the virgin birth in Bethlehem, in my opinion. Uh, others would agree, too, that the hope of Israel is Messiah, which, by the way, Israel, for certainly Orthodox nowadays, still would, that the hope of Israel is still Messiah. Uh, on the other hand, even for the Reformed and the 
conservative Jew, they don't think messianically in the same sense as an orthodox person. But Messiah is the hope of the nations and also of the nation of Israel that still exists, even though it's even divided at that period of time. In chapter 4, the agony of childbirth is used to describe the Babylonian captivity. In chapter 5, the bringing forth of the child is compared to God's son proceeding from eternity to a little town in Bethlehem. Agony in childbirth, dispersion of the Jews, destruction of the city and the temple, but then childbirth. God loves to deal in contrast, doesn't he? He even uses um, irony. The irony of death and destruction viewed from a childbirth perspective and then universal peace and tranquility coming from a virgin's womb. I still imagine that a woman has a greater appreciation for those verses than men do. Mm. Mm. I mean, we, we, we see, you know, I've seen my wife labor and everything, but I didn't feel that labor. You know what I mean? Mm. Mm. Like, women who feel that, I mean, mm. it's got to be... She wasn't holding your hand while she was doing it? She was on the other side of the room. She was covering her mouth to keep from swearing at her. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I get it. Because they experience, you see this reference throughout Scripture, like a woman in labor, you know what I mean? Um, Yeah. yeah, It says, the scripture, uh, Micah says, From you, Bethlehem, one will go forth to me to be ruler in Israel. The rulers are falling apart at this time in the northern kingdom, and they're all apostatized in the southern kingdom. That doesn't mean that they don't do some good things in the southern. I mean, Hezekiah is a reformer, right? But they don't get rid of the idols. Messiah's task is to save God's elect, his remnant from the world. And the remnant of Jacob will be, is the question we ask. Not just Jews, but also the nations. And among the nations, many peoples, Micah says in chapter 5, verse 8. The storyline of God's grace is the same amongst all the prophets. You have rebelled. Most will not come to me, but God will save for himself a remnant to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and a people after his own possession. The last two chapters are somewhat separate, a little disjunted from uh, the rest of the storyline. There are two chapters of denunciation, indictments by God against Israel. Also, Israel replies, and it's a sad, it's, it's the same old sad tale of how the world responds to God's grace. We find common threads in both of these two indictments and two responses by Israel. And by the way, Micah actually responds for Israel what he knows that they are saying already back to God. So in chapter 6, verse 2, we see God's first indictment. I have a case against you, a legal case against Israel, against Judah specifically. Why are you weary of me when I have done so much for you? Oh, Isn't that the common question that needs to be said for every Christian who wearies in their Christian life to persevere? It's hard. I will never deny that. 
But at the end of the day, we should never weary when we can look back and say, Lord, you've done so much, right? You've done so much. It's my own, it's my own, you could say prophetic calling back to me saying, look what he's done in your life, Todd. He's never let you down. Don't get too wearied. Because of time, I was going to ask the question, can a Christian become weary of God? I believe the answer is to a certain degree, but you have to put an asterisk next to it. But what is Israel's answer to this indictment that you have, I have a case against you and you're wearied of me as your shepherd? Well, Israel's answer, Micah says, is this. With what shall I come to the Lord? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings? In other words, should I offer another sacrifice? How about legalism? We've depended on the sacrifices for all these generations. Surely, 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 we just need to kill another million animals. I mean, hyperbolic here, of course. On the other hand, isn't that the natural... uh, uh, part of man, the corrupted man that says, well, God, you have a case against me. I'm going to offer you more sacrifices. The sin is deeper than that, right? With Israel, it is much deeper than that. You've been offering sacrifices. And even if you have uh, gone to every festival and feast, even if you've even uh, offered unblemished lambs, Your idolatry has said your heart is divided against me. Divided. In other words, what more can they do but to offer more sacrifices? And of course, this isn't the answer. God is looking uh, for something else. What does God look for? Well, Micah says to do justice, to love kindness, and to work Humbly. It's fascinating that you can offer sacrifices and to a T do what you're required to do according to the law and still miss out what is important to God. You know, if you only knew what I desired, that I desired mercy rather than sacrifice, right? If you only knew, well, they were his people. Ah, but if you only knew. Would you see a clanging, a clanging gong? Clanging symbol? symbol? Yep. Yeah. First Corinthians 13? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Christians can't be clanging. Yep. So here's Micah's second indictment. And the answer, and the fascinating thing is, is the complicatedness of syncretism in the northern tribes, which is railed against because it's, you can worship idols. And also the living God. In fact, in the time of Hosha, who was during the time of Ahaz uh, and um, uh, uh, Jotham, uh, Hosha is is the one who basically, as the Assyrians took over the northern kingdom, uh, God was sending sending lions out and devouring people. And so he says, by the way, he says, why don't you take one of your priests that is in uh, captivity and bring them back to the land of the ten northern tribes and teach them the old ways. As if somehow that will uh, 
not only satisfy God's wrath as manifested in the lions that God had sent in judgment against the northern tribes, but also to satisfy man's appetite for the living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and then all my other idols on the same hand, holding them both at the same time, right? You know, that's what Isaiah said, right, in chapter 44. He said they don't know what is in their hand. They just don't know what's there. Is it a fire or is it a stick of wood from the same piece of, from the same tree that was cut? And you made an idol out of it. Which is it? And they don't have the spiritual sense to determine the syncretism of worshiping the living and true God and other gods. We have that today. It's interesting how we watch in certain areas of, of the American or the spiritual movement in America that still has some new age contents to it, but also paganistic, certainly paganistic content to it, that the, that the syncretism does not fully, in all cases, leave out the God of the Bible. Gary wants to know what you mean by syncretism. Yes, syncretism, well, I, I displayed it more than defining it, but it's, it's having your religious devotion towards idols and also at the same time towards the living God. That's syncretism. In a very simple sense, of course. Yes, blending the two. That's right. There you go. Good question. So, inclusive. That word, inclusive. I hear that. I get nauseous when I hear that word. I can tell you that. Yeah, real quick. So, if they're going to be inclusive, who decides who's included? Well, you know what ultimately comes down to, Mark? Is that they don't believe in truth. At the end of the day, if you want to hold two things at the same time, and you want a thousand gods, then you're really not interested in truth. You're certainly not interested in the creator of the world. Right? The second indictment by God, remember there's two indictments and two answers by Israel. Here's what Micah says. God calls to the city, chapter 6, verse 9. Can I justify the wickedest? Can I justify wicked scales? In other words, God can't justify wicked scales. God is the one who created the scale and the measures, and man is doing it all by himself. All these leaders that I mentioned beforehand that Micah is railing against, the priest and the other, and certain uh, uh, false prophets, and um, uh, any of the leader that's out there, the necromancers, and all the rest. He's saying, you created your own scales. Here God reminds them of their injustice towards their people and their neighbor. He also reminds them of the idol- their idolatry. God says, I will give you up for destruction. In one sense, God is saying through Micah, I've told you this before and you still don't repent. Stephen says this in Acts chapter 7. Listen to the common tone to it. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, Micah is filled with, right? You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, which Micah is doing here, whose betrayers and murderers you have become. Judah is filled with betrayers or murderers, oppressors. They are oppressors of the poor. 
And Micah even blurts out a messianic hope to them, and they're missing it. So what is Israel's answer to this um, indictment by God that you justify, you weigh your own scales, you justify yourselves? Well, the first one, remember the first one was more sacrifices. The second one is more sin. Micah speaks to Israel, woe then to me. And that's the irony. He takes this personally. Israel has sinned, Judah has sinned, and I'm receiving, as it were, even the guilt of their sin upon me because i got to preach against it. i got to preach against it. He basically says, Micah says, that the trees have no fruit. There's no fruit. So that's your answer back to God. More sin, more fruitlessness, no more harvests of righteousness. And God judges Judah through Micah. Woe is me. Not only is there scarcely a fruit, but also there's scarcity of righteous men. Micah is groaning with God's creation of trees and men who have vanished. Righteous men have vanished in the land. So good were the Jews in the days of Ahab, hunting down their neighbor. They used both of their hands and uh, both of their hands to do evil, and they, quote, did it well. Micah says, don't trust anyone. You can't even trust your own neighbor in Judah at his time, at that period of time when Micah was prophesying. Now remember, 130 years later, Judah's going to get their just rewards for all of this. But God only judges Israel, and God prevents the Assyrians from taking over Jerusalem. So this 130-year span is another moment of God's grace, not judging immediately what they truly deserved. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. That's the characterization of Micah to the Judeans. And we know where that text comes from, right? Or I should actually is repeated in the New Testament. Jesus quoted Micah here in Matthew 10. God did not send Jesus, his son, to bring peace to the earth. He did not, by the way, send Micah to bring peace to the earth. He say he sent Micah to proclaim repentance to a nation who is serving other gods. That's our call as well. But to bring, as Micah and Jesus, I believe, are parallels here. Micah, like Jesus, brings a sword. Separating father and mother, sons and daughters in Matthew 10. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10, 34 to 38. Very similar message. Overall, the same message. The kingdom of God suffers violence and violent men take it by force. This is what's happening. 
The violent men are taking the 10 northern tribes during Micah's reign for about a 35-year period. Then, boom, they finally take over. Of course, you know, now, by the way, you have to remember, historically, when these things are happening, it's not like at 586, everything happens at the same time. Or in 722, the 10 northern tribes, everything happened at the same time. No, no, there's an impulse of a, of a, of a uh, empire. Here it would be the Assyrians. Drawing south and taking over villages, and taking over cities, and to a certain extent, kings uh, trying to pacify uh, the Assyrians, or in the case of Judah, pacifying the Babylonians. And over a certain period of time of a few years, they get tired of them. For instance, uh, uh, in Judah, uh, the later kings of uh, Judah tried to get uh, the Egyptians to help them in terms of and I think that also happened with uh, Hezekiah as well. So it happens over a period of time, the overall captivity of the ten northern tribes and the Babylonian captivity. Micah is groaning with God's creation of trees and men because they can't find a righteous man in the nation. So good were the Jews in that day that even... Um, I already read that, didn't I? Sorry about that. Uh, Micah's faith. Let's finish up there. Leave a little room for questions. Micah's faith. I will bear... And I didn't write down the text, so I apologize for that. Micah says, I will bear the indignation. Yes, actually, chapter 7, verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord... In other words, the indictments against Israel, he's bearing under it as well. <clears throat> because I have sinned against them. Now, can you imagine that? You see how important that is for us as well? <clears throat> Our nation has sinned, and I'm not making an equivalent here between Israel and the way they were called as a nation in America. Not at all. On the other hand, though, we empathize with the conditions to which they are under. Micah was under as a righteous man and a prophet, and we we can take some of the uh, applications and bring it into our day and age. I have sinned along with my nation, is basically what Micah is saying. I've sinned against God until God pleads my case, Micah says, and executes justice for me. Now there's the righteousness side of it, isn't it? I'm a great sinner, but Lord, execute justice now. Because I am jealous with the jealousy of God. My word's not his. He will bring me out of the light and I will see his righteousness. You see, when God judges a nation, you are watching God in action. Right? When God judges this nation severely, because he hasn't yet, not to the severity that I think all of us are kind of thinking like where we're headed, Right? You can say to yourselves, I've seen this before. And I'm going to even maybe turn to Micah and see how he responded, how he felt. And also, by the way, what he saw about the glory of God when he acted. Because that's important for the Christian. It makes us see what other men don't see. Isn't that important when they're suffering? We have to see what others do not see who do not have the spirit of God. It is difficult, I wrote this statement down here, 
It is difficult for a Christian to enter into this kind of solidarity as Micah, this solidarity of mourning, of also anticipation of God's judgment and seeing true righteousness reign when he judges the nation. Because remember, when God judges, if there's not righteousness in the land, if he can't find a righteous man, per se, then when God judges, now he sees what righteousness looks like. Right? Now he sees it. That just brings the glory of God to our minds and our hearts. He said, Lord, that's what I've been waiting to see. So it's difficult for the Christian to enter into this kind of solidarity. Again, America is not equivalent to Israel in terms of its history, God's purposes with it, and all the rest. So we are kind of like this, 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 we are, we are Christian people in a nation that's fallen into idolatry like uh, Israel of past, but we're also not like a Jew seeing their Jewish brothers and sisters who are um, falling into this idolatry. I, say, I see pagan people becoming more pagan, but I do see, though, the suffering of my other Christians who are under this tyranny of evil. And calling evil good and good evil. And we can empathize with one another in that. We disconnect sometimes from ourselves even. Pity for the world. Right? And that should never happen. Because again, why would Micah suffer with Israel when Israel slash Judah are at fault? They are dead in their trespasses and sin, and their sin is incurable. How can we? But we must, in order to identify with God's mercy. This conversion transformation language that um, Micah uses, this hope uh, that the nation may finally be transformed, to restore Israel and crush her enemies is found, and I don't have the text here, he will again have compassion on us. Yes, he will ca- yet he will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Verse 19. There you go. You know, though our sins were scarlet, he made us white as snow. He will cast our sins behind his back. Here it's the depths of the sea. In redeeming grace, God has saved his elect in Micah's time and even ours. That's why we don't, well, that's why right here, we don't cease preaching. And so therefore, when we go back to work or we, we have uh, whatever we're doing during the day, we are like a prophet going into a land of evil and we, like Micah, mourn over it, pity it, and then preach the gospel because we have the hope that God still is in the business of transforming people. You know, uh, I, I, I just want to point something out. Yeah. Uh, uh, just sort of contrast from what we have here in this nation mm. and, and, and what Micah is talking about and what's happening there. Mm. Um, you know, he, he might have been one of very, very few that was doing those things. Right, right. Uh, but... Uh, I also want to tell you that there's an awful lot of people in the United States of America right now that are doing Oh, I agree with you. Oh, absolutely. 
And so I, I, I just want to, yeah, I, I just want to point that out. Yeah, because you know, in the work that I do, man, there are lots of people that are standing up and starting. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't deny that. I don't very, deny very that. Hard. And, yeah. and there are states that are saying, nah, this is no, this is stupid. You know, this is no, no, no. I would never say that. Change operations and all those other sorts of things. Yeah. So. I, I, did, I just want to sort of share that with yeah. people to sort of make sure that we don't walk down this road that, well, you know, we just, right. you know, just let God do what he's, whatever he's going to do. We deserve it, blah, blah, blah. You know, and yes, true. Mm-hmm. We are sinful, and there's right. no question about that, right. but that goes without saying, right? right. Uh, I, so I just, I just want to say... No, no, I, agree, I, agree, I totally agree with you, Bill. There's and a lot of prophets out there. <laughs> <laughs> and thank God for those standing up for righteousness. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're called to do. Only God knows the, the ultimate. That's one of them. Only, and only God knows what the future is for America, Western culture, and society, and all the rest. Um, so it doesn't appear as though we are quite at the same place that Mike has described, although it's surely... Well, again, I, you know, again, the future looks bleak, but I know God's grace can make the bleak look really bright. It's just a simple battle of Ephesians chapter 6, okay? Right, that's right. Yeah, that's all of it. That's right. That's right. And every culture, every generation, it's 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 evil from uh, how's how's Paul word it um, from uh, heavenly places. In heavenly places. There you go. That's right. So he will again have compassion. The ultimate compassion is the Lord returning. By the way, in saving His elect. So Christ has accomplished this. Treading our iniquities under his foot. And that's, I'm using some of the language of the New Testament when I say that. This is Israel's hope. Not in the building of a new temple or fixing Jerusalem's walls. Sin is too ugly and too sinful. No man can reshape a corrupted soul. No man or only Christ can cover our sin with his blood. Only Christ can satisfy God's wrath. That is upon us. Or now we speak in past tenses, Christians, right? He has satisfied his wrath. Look what uh, Micah says. For the world, Micah says, and this is for the general world, your punishment will come. Then their confusion will occur. And so syncretism has only led nations into more confusion. It is all about the creator of the heavens and the earth. It's oneism versus twoism. Oneism is simply the philosophy that there is one God, one creator of the heavens and the earth, and we are but creatures. The other, twoism, is that there is, I'm sorry, I'm trying to uh, quote Dr. Peter, Peter Jones. Oneism is the worship of the creature. That, I'm sorry. Twoism is that there is a God and then they <coughs> worship the creature. And no, I'm going to backtrack out that. I got to go look back on his You're notes and see that <laughs> before I have to get down into more thought and look look back at it because I'm a little confused right now. But there is there is such a um, wording like that that comes from Doctor Peter Jones. Anyways. We do have syncretism. It leads to more captivity and more confusion. And we're living through it, but we need to be a man like Micah, one who stands up for righteousness 
And as Bill said, there's many out there that do. And that's a great thing. And that's the, that's the, by the way, the testimony of the grace of God in relationship to his goodness still allowing us to have more than just one or two or three prophets. Remember, Isaiah is preaching in around a 20 year period of time when Micah is preaching at the same time. Uh, if I remember right, it's Isaiah who's How actually. Knows at that time were, were, were well, I'm thinking more major prophets in terms of ones that are writing uh, prophets. Yeah. But you know, they still had to school the prophets. So how many were they pumping out that ended up becoming idolaters? And how many got pumped out that were truly righteous men? I don't know. Right? In, in our day and age, we say, look at our schools. They're not pumping out too much, right? <laughs> They're pumping out a lot of unrighteousness. No. So uh, let's uh, finish in prayer. Father, we thank and praise you for the glory of God revealed, O oh Lord, in your saving a people for your own possession. For, O Lord, seeing the judgment of the nations, of a demonstration of your righteousness, uh, where, O Lord, you save and you also condemn. That we see God at work and his mighty works bring us to the altar to praise you and to magnify and to worship you. Because you have shown us, you've given us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, that which is unseen to the natural world, but is seen in the spiritual world through the Spirit of God who dwells within us. And we say amen to this, Lord, that you show us your righteousness in Christ. Thank you, O Lord, for sending him to save us and to bring us into fellowship with him and to glorify him forevermore. Amen. Amen. Three, four minutes over.